Warning, this podcast episode contains explicit content, including swearing, discussion of sexual violence and rape, and other adult content. Welcome to Crow Club, a Shadow and Bone and Grishaverse podcast. We will be covering all of the Grishaverse in this podcast, and it will be full of spoilers. No, really, there will be lots of spoilers. There will be spoilers for the original Shadow and Bone trilogy, Six of Crows duology, King of Scars duology, season one of the Shadow and Bone Netflix show, and maybe even Demon in the Woods, The Tailor, and The Language of Thorns. We'll be covering a character, topic, arc, or wild conspiracy theory in each episode. So bust out your tinfoil hats and join us. We're a group of friends who spent years reading the Grishaverse and discussing it together. Since Rule of Wolves and the Shadow and Bone show came out, we have had a very active group chat and have had so much fun re-engaging with all the theories and discussions. So we thought it'd be fun to invite others to join us in our discussion. I'm Anjali. I'm Kat. And I'm JJ. And today we'll be talking about Inej, one of the crows, otherwise known as the Wraith. We'll begin with a quote that really encapsulates Inej. Quote, she was the wraith. The only law that applied to her was gravity. And some days she defied that too. In the books, Inej is a young Suli girl. She was kidnapped as a young girl from Bravka and sold into an indenture. She basically has to work as a courtesan at a house called the Menagerie, run by Tantaween. Her indenture is bought out by Kaz, and instead she goes and works for him as his spider. Her past as an acrobat allows her to climb everywhere, eavesdrop, gather information, steal things, sometimes kill people, and then just sort of disappear into the shadows. She's still indentured to the leader of Kaz's gang, Per Haskell, but overall her life is much better because she's not forced into sex work and she actually has a chance to pay off her indenture. She has a badass name in the gang, the Wraith, and her role is like this kind of cool ninja, but though she is very cool and calm on the surface always, she's very intensely vulnerable. We can kind of see in her point of view. She's still very traumatized by her time in the menagerie, and she's terrified of Tom Helene. She and Kaz have tentative feelings for each other that grow and grow more obvious as the books progress. Her character arc shows her able to get stronger and sort of battle and overcome a lot of her emotional scars. She eventually becomes a pirate on the high seas dedicated to freeing other people being sold into slavery. And Shonish is fairly similar in that she's still kind of this badass spider right-hand person of Kaz, but the major differences I noticed when I watched it were that she was against killing for religious reasons, she preferred not to kill anyone. That said, we do actually see her kill two different people just in season one. She's still at the stage where she's trying to get her freedom from the menagerie. The other kind of difference I noticed is that she had a brother in the show. And in the books, I think they only mention her parents and her trying to look for her parents. She also gets to meet Alina, which we should talk more about, and lets her go when Jesper and Kaz have been disarmed by Alina. So our fun fact about Inej's name is that the name Inej is a variation of the name Inez, or Agnes, which means holy, pure, or virginal. And I sobbed a little bit when I read that definition, just quietly to myself. 
And so one of the major differences between the books and the show that I thought would be interesting to talk about is Inez's identity and how her racial identity changes a lot. She is Suli in both the books and the show, but in the books it is heavily implied that Suli is like crypto-Romani culture. And in the show, both characters that are supposed to be Suli, Inej, and spoiler, I guess, Zoya, are very clearly of Indian descent. And they've kind of changed the, I guess, the culture that Suli is supposed to represent from Romani to Indian. And I think that's kind of interesting. I personally enjoyed it because, you know, as an Indian person, I love seeing actors of my ethnicity get representation and not play, you know, generic kind of stereotypical parts. These are like exciting, dynamic characters, and it's really fun to see them on screen. I might imagine that if I were of Romani descent, I might be somewhat insulted that essentially there's like some sort of erasure happening here. On the other hand, you know, I do think a lot of times when Romani culture is depicted in television shows and movies, it is very stereotypical and it's kind of insulting. Yeah. Although, Anjali, didn't you say you were the one who pointed out in Crooked Kingdom, I think, that there is a Suli character in there whose name is Bajan? Yes, yes. That's actually a great point. I forgot we talked about that. So I do think that Lee kind of, she started out wanting Suli to represent Romani but she definitely seems to kind of have a change of heart and want to incorporate more Indian references. In Six of Crows, the music teacher that kidnaps Inej and is Alice's music teacher is of Suli descent also, and his name is Bhajan, which is the Hindi word for song. So the fact that he's a music teacher and his name means song in Hindi is is not just a coincidence, right? (laughs) So random. (laughs) She's clearly seeding for Suli to also have Indian influences. And I'm not sure if that was something that predated the idea of there being a television show and the, the casting being more accessible, or when she was writing that book, she kind of already knew there would be a show and she was trying to anticipate some of those changes. I'm also curious about where this evolution kind of came from too. I think like Anjali was saying, it's possible that Lee was starting to think about the show and casting for it. And that's when she started to evolve Suli to be more on the like Indian side, although she didn't kind of abandon some of the original pieces of the Suli culture that she developed. But it definitely felt like she'd made a conscious decision to start shifting away from Romani. One thing that happened in the show that kind of made me wonder, I mean, I think we will definitely have an episode that's just dedicated to race in the show. I think it's such an interesting topic and there's so many things that have kind of come up with the show's depictions, but made me kind of wonder about Suli's place in society and and place how the Suli are viewed in Ravka was Inej's presence in Ravka on the show doesn't seem to cause any comment at all. She's able to masquerade as a palatine guard. And if Suli were really, you know, outsiders and so rare, you think more people would have been like, what are you doing here? Do you belong here? <laughs> yeah, how but are you like, apparently they're kind of common enough that there might be one that's a palace guard and, and no one is gonna, you know, raise an eyebrow at that. I thought that was really fascinating. Totally. And it actually kind of reminds me of the fact that the only thing we know kind of about where Inej's family was, they were in Ravka traveling through Ravka. We don't know if they were originally from there or if they were just traveling there 
when she was captured. I think it was specifically West Ravka where she was captured. And she does speak Ravkin. You know, it, in Inezha's backstory, she doesn't read mm-hmm. Kirch. She learns how to read it after Kaz buys yep. her indenture. So, but it made me wonder what she read. Like, did she only read Suli? I guess because she's the spider, I would also be willing to bet that she probably speaks multiple languages. So outside of Suli, we know that she's speaking Kirch in Ketterdam. And as a, you know, as a spy, the more languages, the better. Well, Nina for sure did that. But she has the benefit of like extensive education because Inej definitely doesn't speak Fjordan or Shu. I would believe that Inej understands a lot of languages and that's part of her maybe self-taught training as a spy. Uh, But she definitely can't speak them as well. Definitely not as well as Nina, who sort of prides herself on her ability to blend in. We definitely don't see in the books any indication that she understands either Fjordan or Shu. So actually, fun fact this is my kind of jj fun fact time i don't know if you two already know this but you can call it cat fun fact. <laughs> it feels <It's> okay. off <laughs> brand <laughs> i feel like i'm <laughs> stepping into your territory but i was going to say that it's actually two different parts of the brain for language production versus language comprehension so that's why there a lot of times second generation children can understand their parents when they're speaking to them in their native or mother tongue but aren't able to respond to them and respond in English, for example. I think it's definitely possible that Inej is able to, like Anjali said, understand languages that she's not able to speak herself. Wow, that is so interesting. I had no idea there were two different parts of the brain. I will say that we don't see any indication that she can understand those other languages. I guess we didn't really see her try to interact much with Kue when he was pretending to not speak. Not at all. Okay, yeah. Not at all. And we didn't see her do anything in Fierda that involved Fierdin or even understand. Gotcha. That's true. And I would believe she didn't know Shu because I think it is more unusual for the Shu to be in Ketterdam. Like, I think it was a big deal when there was like a Shu trading ship in Crooked Kingdom. So let's move on a little bit to Inezha's relationship with religion. One of the things that really stuck with me from when I read it years ago I remembered how all of her knives were named after saints. She went through and she would touch them and say their (laughs) names as sort of a litany that she would repeat to herself. I think it was a great illustration of how important her religion was to her. The things that she carried all the time also reminded her of her religion. Don't you find that like slightly strange, at least in the show, if not in the books, that she names the things that she uses to harm people and then even kill? after saints, it feels almost sacrilegious to me to do that. So I I think it depends on the religion. And we actually don't know very much (laughs) about this religion at all. We know almost nothing about this religion other than that there are Mm -hmm. saints and churches and priests. And we get one reference to a So we know that Inej does talk about gods too, because remember when she asks Kaz, like what God, is it that you pray to? Or I can find the quote maybe, but she asks Kaz, you know, like, which God is going to help you? I think she's just challenging Kaz to, like, actually come up with a justification for what he's doing or because she I mean she constantly tells him like you know I'll pray for you and he's like don't pray for me it's like wasted and he's like what do you believe in what god is motivating you so I found the quote just because I remembered thinking it was interesting it was Inej and Kaz talking and she says greed is your god Kaz he almost laughed at that no Inej greed bows to me it is my servant and my lover and what god do you serve then whichever god will grant me good fortune I don't think gods work that way I don't think I care. I 
can't really see her ever joking about religion just because it seems so out of character to me. So based on that, I think she does believe that there are also gods. I buy that. I don't think gods work that way. Sounds like a, yeah. I think also the fact that she, the verb she uses is serve. Like what God do you serve? is again, like, that's the way someone who really believes in religion would speak, right? We all serve someone. <laughs> I love how you can just pull Darkling quotes out of nowhere and apply them. <laughs> You're welcome. So I, getting back to her knives, in the book, it did not strike me as strange that her knives were named after saints. In the show, what strikes me as strange is that she carries all these knives that she is apparently unwilling to yes. use. Yes, it didn't make any sense whatsoever. Uh, it really irritated me, actually. I think there is a kind of a huge discrepancy in this new facet they tried to put into Inez's character where they make it a plot point, essentially, in the show where she's like, I've never killed, I don't want to kill. You know, Tantaline, like sends her essentially to go kill Arkham and she has this huge sort of moral dilemma about it. But I'm just like, why? You showed up to this brothel with like 17 knives on your body. What do you do with these knives? And I, I don't think they made her not religious in the show, especially with how she reacts to Alina. It's very consistent with the way she acts in the book in terms of being really in awe of her being a saint. But they sort of changed her attitude towards killing to make it incompatible with her religious beliefs. But yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's that weird to carry knives around as a spy in Ketterdam working for a gang, even if you don't want to kill, like you can still hurt someone you can still defend yourself or maybe threaten sure but you're carrying killing. like 12 knives on your person <laughs> that's just well, like she a lot them. like she throws them at people all the time so i guess she loses them sometimes i don't think we ever see her retrieve them in the show after she throws them which is crazy given that she's like named them after her favorite saints but like you know there's that one where she's about to kill arkin and then Kaz comes in she throws a knife and it barely misses him we don't see her retreat that one. And then like later when uh, she actually kills the sister, the, like brother that she'd killed earlier, I, we don't see her retreat either of those knives until she pulls it out and kills her, I guess. Wow, you've been really keeping track of knives. Oh, I'm tracking those knives. Remember when she took the knife out of her hair and it was like beautiful hair falling? That was incredible. Okay, okay. So over the course of the show, she loses all her knives or something. At the time when... After the fold in that last episode with Alina, Alina says something like, I think I like that hand with a knife in it, and gives Inej Alina's knife. And the implication, I guess to me, had sounded like she'd lost well, all she her Well, she did. Knives. Now that you're saying that, in the fold, she'd run out. Am I wrong? When the Volcra comes? Yes. She loses all her knives that she named after mm -hmm. saints. Over the course of the show, she loses her entire religion. Wow. Only to find it again in Alina. At, at the foot of a literal Wow. I would love to believe the show actually planned that. Do I question a little bit? Am I a little skeptical? Yes. But if they did plan that out, amazing. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Okay. Especially in light of that revelation in some of your guys' comments, I will drop my quibble with her having, you know, <laughs> multitude of knives on her person as being incompatible with her desire not to kill. But I do think there is there is a still a, a large kind of hypocrisy going on with Shoenage. So I actually saw this point come up on Reddit and the poster Adept Bedroom 6906 made a great point pointing out the sort of hypocrisy 
hypocrisy with Inez. You know, she's against killing. She obviously has real problems with human trafficking, given her background. But she's totally okay with the job to kidnap Alina and smuggle her back into a Ketterdam. And presumably she'll either be killed or stolen to slavery. And you think someone with the sort of moral compass and the motivations they've presented in Inej would really refuse to essentially do the job, but she doesn't put up any protests about it. In the books, she... Is it similar with Kuwait or, you know, like, how does she react to kidnapping? Obviously, the situation is pretty different where Kuwait is being held as presumably a prisoner in the ice court in Fierda, which is like, you know, very anti-Grisha place and planning to use him. Yeah, I think there's another big difference with the Kuwait thing, which is that she does not think they're kidnapping or liberating Kuwait. She thinks they're going after Bo, who Mm. is much older. And I don't know how much is known about Alina, like how much she knows about her age and how much that would matter to her. She could draw a real distinction between how children are treated and how adults, I think they age them up to to that point. So I could see there being a difference there as well. Yeah, I guess it's hard to say. I think the only other potential reason why maybe we could say she justified it is if she actually thought that Alina was like a fake, someone pretending to be a saint. And that was like offensive enough to her that she was willing to do this job. But even so, it's hard for me to imagine the book Inej being willing to do this job of kidnapping a young girl. I do think the situation with book Inej is different. I did briefly go and flip through Six of Crows before the podcast. And she does not protest about kidnapping Bo or Huey, but I think the difference is in the book, Bo is trying to escape the ice court and he asks the Kirch merchants for help. And so they're supposedly going on a rescue mission. And then when it is discovered that Bo is dead and then it's Huey, they essentially don't give him to the, the merchant council. He's safe at all times and they don't really sell him out at all. So I don't think Bokinej is put in that situation where there is actual human kidnapping the whole mission is different but in the show it's very clear that they're coming in to steal a person and smuggle her across the ocean which is exactly what happened to Inez so you know there should be yeah this should be kind of traumatic for her to have to do that in my opinion I think the other thing that came out about uh, show Inej that another Reddit user, Sanctizana, had pointed out was she's talking about her missing parents and looking for this brother that only exists in the show. But once they get to Ravka, she doesn't look for them at all, really. And it does seem strange that she wouldn't take any time, especially after the job is finished, to try and see if her parents or this brother are still there. There's a scene when they first arrive in Ravka and she's looking through like a list of names on a tablet, like a list of the dead. And she appears to be trying to see if her family is there or not. But I agree with you. It's very strange that she doesn't try to like stay in Ravka. To like family. once she doesn't see their names on the stone tablets, wouldn't she be more motivated to look for them? I don't know. I guess to me, I didn't think it was strange because I don't know how she would have actually looked for her parents. If we're going with the like Suli and the caravan, they may or may not be in Ravka even. There's no reason that we know of that she believes them to be in Ravka at the time of the show. I just 
assumed that she did not have the resources to spend months or years trying to track them. That's true. In the book, she does say she knows the Suli trade routes. But one thing that's different in the show is that Kaz has put the whole Crow Club on the line and he's taken a lot of responsibility for her indenture. And I think partially maybe she doesn't want to escape because she knows what that would mean for Kaz. And so maybe her relationship with Kaz is causing her to not just flit off wherever she wants. That said, I think she probably could have looked for her her family within the confines of their mission or like shown some desire to, but I, it does make sense to me that she doesn't just drop everything and go. Okay. I guess it's just so hard for me to understand that she wouldn't stay and search for them when she's already in the country. Like this is her whole driving backstory. And in the books, it's so important to her to find her parents. That's true. It is a backstory that they introduced. Not to say that she doesn't have family that she lost in the book, but in the show, she has a brother and it's a very deliberate introduction. And they're clearly trying to set up maybe like a search for her brother, reunion for her brother. So it's odd, given Mm -hmm. that, that they don't pursue that within the show. We know that Inej has been trafficked to the menagerie, which is essentially a brothel. She is very young. She is 15 when she is trafficked there. Then Kaz convinces Per Haskell to buy her indenture. So by the time Six of Crows starts, Inej is already no longer indentured to the menagerie. However, she has a deep trauma from her time there. We know that sometimes touch is hard for her. And when she walks by the menagerie or when she sees Tantaline, she will have panic attacks. This is something that is like deeply traumatic and difficult for her. In the show, this is different in a few different ways. So Kaz has not bought her indenture from Tante Helene at the beginning of the show. And when she's called back to the menagerie, she's annoyed, but she goes. We don't see her at least have what is clearly a trauma reaction. It, it seems like more of an annoyed reaction. She's almost aggressive when she visits the menagerie in the show. She really is. The guard, you know, she's taking out all her knives and she brings down her hair and the guard says, oh, that's a new one. And she goes, would you like me to show you how it works? <laughs> and this Very cocky. seems, it, it is, it's really cocky. There is some lip there. And I obviously don't want to discount that these could be people react to trauma in all sorts of different ways. But it is not something that reads as obviously a trauma response in her book or in her head. You know, it's it's interesting you say that because in this show, I kind of saw Inej being played as like very confident to hide the fear, which I think probably all of us have experienced before too when you know, you're faced with a threat. And you're trying to seem like really in control because you think it'll actually escalate or spiral to be something worse if you look like you're scared. I think the other major thing, though, is we don't get her perspective chapters when it's a show. And so everyone looks more confident when you're not hearing their inner monologue of what's going on and how she's scared. There is a point in the show where we do see that when she tells Jasper that she can't go back. And he's like, well, you know, of course. And she's like, no, I can't go back. And that, for me, when I was watching, I was like, oh, here's where we see it. That does, I think, support more of the assertion that she was covering something earlier on. Yeah, and I love her relationship with Jesper in the show. I just thought it was like one of the best parts of it. And 
Maybe thinking back, comparing to the books, I think we see more of her relationship with Nina. And because we didn't get that in this season, they really gave her and Jesper a lot of interaction and ability to play off each other. But I thought they had such good on-screen chemistry. Completely agree. It was a delightful friendship. Very much so. And I think that, I mean, I think you're right. In the books, her friendship with Nina is also really delightful. And I think because that wasn't possible, they gave her kind of just as awesome of a friendship with Jesper, which I really appreciated. I also felt like they gave Jasper, maybe more like screen time is a kind of a weird word to use here than the books, but it just felt like his charm really came through. And part of that is probably the actor himself, but his competition was like Kaz and Inej, who aren't supposed to be the charming ones. He didn't have Mina there. He just had way more of a chance to shine and become like this really lovable, outstanding character. That's very true. Kaz and Inej are total like sullen grump faces most of the time, which doesn't really make for a very compelling TV watching. So I think they allowed Jesper's personality to shine and gave him more of the scenes. Yeah, I love that. And like you said, her relationship with Nina in the books is just like pure gold. You know, just completely had each other's backs. Do you remember that part where Nina's like wants to do something and Kaz is like, no, and I can do it without you. And then Inej is like, but you can't do it without me. Yeah, it's when Nina is trying to force Kaz to evacuate all the Grisha out of Ketterdam. And Kaz is like, no, I don't have time for this. And I don't care that much. And Inej is like, start to care because I'm, I am I support her. Yeah, love that. Love that friendship. The other crow, she has a relationship with, although it's less developed, that might be interesting just to briefly talk about is Matthias. So I think in the books, they actually very quickly develop this like strong mutual respect for each other. Basically, in a sense, Inej is kind of the like heart of the crows where every crow has a relationship with her, like a deep kind of bond or friendship in some way. And with Matthias, it's a respectful one where she very quickly proves to him that even though she's a, like this little girl and he's like this you know big hulking almost man, that she has her knives and he respects her. The other thing that's interesting is they're the two most religious characters by far. I'm actually curious, who do you think is more religious of those two? Matthias. Yeah, it's, it's hard to say. So I feel like Inej has reconciled her lifestyle with her religion and like believes that what she's doing is justified in some way. So I think that she's still religious. However, I would say that Matthias is more strict about how he lives and how he thinks and feels a lot of guilt about things. I, I think Matthias has a very strict code he follows that's based on his religion and he feels a lot of guilt when he doesn't follow it, a lot of pressure to do things. Whereas I think Inej is still religious, but she's more flexible and I think more practical about following her religion. Yeah, I don't think she's at odds with it, except in the show, I guess, yeah, when she's I, killing people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there is not enough on page about Inesha's religion for her to be at odds with it. This actually really struck me on the reread of especially Crooked Kingdom, how much more built out Fierda and Kirch's religions mm -hmm. were. The hand of Gezen, the churches being in the shape of hands and the formulas and whatever and all that stuff, which is missing from Ravka's religion. We just don't know that and we don't know 
how Inej feels about that, how those things permeate, how they don't permeate her life. But like for me, I saw a lot more of Matias's religion in that because I think it was also just much more described on page and much more explicitly mm-hmm. tied in for his character. That's fair. So, and then <laughs> the other crow that I'd love to hear your thoughts on in terms of Inej's relationship is Kaz. What do you think of how they interact with each other? What do you think of how their relationship develops over the two books in the show? We can start with a quote that summarizes them beautifully, which is, two of the deadliest people the barrel had to offer, and they could barely touch each other without (laughs) both of them keeling over. Yes, their relationship is very interesting. And I think their relationship in the books and the show is very distinct, very different, and we'd have to talk about them separately. In the books, they both have feelings for each other. Inez is probably more receptive towards her feelings with Kaz, whereas Kaz is desperately trying to deny them, both to Inej and himself. You know, he does not want to make himself vulnerable. He constantly tells her like, oh, you know, I'm just protecting my investment when I rescued you or you're easily replaced. And eventually, you know, it gets to the point where he can't hide his feelings, although I don't know, he's still pretty gruff. But anyway, she sort of puts up with this treatment, but she sort of she regularly challenges him and she's like, aren't you at least going to say thank you? Or she demands that he apologizes to her like she she knows that he feels differently about her and he wants him to show it and she keeps telling him like you know be kind to me in various ways and he resists that but i i like how she sort of stands up for herself a little bit she's a bit sassy with him when he's abhorrently rude to her i also thought it was really heartbreaking when she's kidnapped and they threaten to break her legs and she's like convinced that if they break her legs, she'll be useless to cause and that he won't come for her. And I thought that was so sad. And again, kind of goes to that idea of even though she appears really confident and, you know, sure of herself on the outside, on the inside, she's just like all of us. Like she doesn't know how he really feels. Yeah. She wants to believe that those like gruff words are lies and he's covering, but she doesn't know for sure. And the show, on the other hand, one thing that they completely changed is in the very first episode you can see that Kaz is totally in love with Inej and Mm -hmm. obviously he still doesn't say it but he's like hangs on her every word he's looking out like to hoping that she's at his window I think both actors do a very good job of portraying a couple that hasn't told each other that they're into each other but is clearly very into each other and I think that makes their relationship like kind of easier to digest and root for it makes it kind of delightful in the book it was definitely you know torturesome both for them as a couple to sort of go through but then in even as a reader to have to read about it it was hard I had not spent very much time thinking about the differences between what is possible in books and what is possible in television or movie format before, especially in terms of just like how well we get to know the characters and what we see of them. And if we had not had Kazan and Edge's perspective in the Six of Crows duology, their relationship wasn't a relationship, really. We would have occasionally seen Kaz acting crazy and been like, whoa, what just happened? But, you know, we're in their heads and we really know what's going on and we can really see that development. And so it is interesting just how well, with some changes, how it just like felt like it really flourished on the screen. 
The other thing that I'd love to hear a little bit about is, JJ, you've talked about this before in our chat, how in some ways the Kaz Inej relationship is kind of the like satisfying version of Dark Lena. So at the end of Crooked Kingdom, Kaz and Inej are having a conversation and Kaz says something like, you want me to be a good man, a better man. And Inej says, Ketterdam doesn't need a good man, it needs you. The parallels to the conversation that the Darkling and Alina had back in the original trilogy, where the Darkling says to her, you might make me a better man. And she says, and you might make me a monster. I think this conversation Kaz and Inej had was so much more nuanced. Kaz is aware of who he is. I think the Darkling is aware of who he is, just does not exactly care and is just trying to manipulate Alina. But Inej is also aware that things are not morally black and white. She wants to use Kaz's connections and his sort of like shady way of dealing with things to make real systemic change in Ketterdom, to get rid of slavery and indentureship. And she recognizes that the way she's going to get rid of it isn't just by getting a ship and sailing around the seas the whole time. She's only going to be able to take down one ship at a time. That's not going to solve the systemic problem that there's a market for the people who are being trafficked. And I think that, I guess I said, this is the Dark Lena we deserve. I love that they're both so nuanced. I think there's a lot more because we get both of their perspectives, because they're both characters that are working in this in-between area. One thing I thought was really great about Inej in their relationship dynamic, I've sort of mentioned it before, but she definitely pushes for respect and to get what she needs. I think that the end of Six of Crows is a really hard moment in their relationship when they're on the boat. And he basically is vulnerable, like just the tiniest bit vulnerable, but literally vulnerable for the first time where he says, I want you to stay. I want you. And that for him is like a huge admission. And I think Inej realizes it as such. But at the same time, she's already defined what she needs from that relationship. She needs a, a whole relationship, not a relationship where he's scared to touch her or and also not a relationship where he's so emotionally guarded all the time. He needs to essentially let her in. And she says, you know, I will have you without armor, Kazbrecker, or I will not have you at all. And that line just like is so hard for Kaz to take. And it's it's so crushing. But I was so proud of Inej in that moment. I think that's such a strong thing to be able to say that and to set that boundary with someone to essentially risk losing him forever by drawing that and trusting that either he will take that message and come back around or you'll have to let him let go, but you'll be better and survive without him. Honestly, on the reread, that scene was tough for me like very mixed feelings about it. Like that was such, in his mind, like a big step for him to take to kind of talk to her. And then to hear her basically say, unless you're about to start making major steps to working on your haptophobia, then this isn't going to work. I think we already know what Inej means is not literally like, I need your armor down, like I need you to be touching me for us to be in a relationship. But even more than that, I need you to let down your emotional armor and communicate with me. But I think we know because of Kaz's major insecurities, I think when he hears that line, he focuses on the touching part and just like shuts down 
completely. I think, yeah, I guess it was just tough for me thinking back on it because I wanted her to basically get him to like promise to work together on the problems. And it felt more like an ultimatum in a sense, specific to his aversion to touch. I just think if you were a normal person, though, you would hear that and you'd be like, okay, here's the reason that I'm like kind of scared of touching you or like, I love you anyway. Like, let me show you the life I could give you, even if we could never have that type of intimacy, like I can make it up to you or I'm really sorry you feel that way or like anything. He can't say that. If he could say those things, I think she could live with him and she wouldn't have run away. But he literally can't even do that. So he he kind of deserves it, I felt. Harsh. It's yeah, really harsh. harsh, but fair. I think, yeah, when I read it, he was just like burning with shame and I could not help but like strongly empathize with him. That feeling when you're so ashamed of something that you're like frozen. I feel like I keep saying this, but I just love having both of their perspectives mm-hmm. and deeply understanding both of them. And that's why I can like keep rooting for this relationship. Right. Yeah. I think like you were saying, if we only had Inez's or we only watched it in the show, I think we'd all be like, yeah, maybe you should leave him. Not sure about this guy. You know? <laughs> but when you actually hear how he feels about her and like his own internal conflict, I think it's a lot easier to root for them. All this to say, how do we feel about Inej as a character? Lightning round. I love Inej. I think she's amazing. She's so strong. She's resilient. She's thoughtful. I think what Kat said about her having a relationship with each of the characters in the books, like really being at the heart of the crows is very true. I think she's just, you know, a wonderful person who's had to deal with a lot. I love her character. I think she's great. I think in the show, show Inej is, is, has some contradictions that gives me some pause, but overall, she's fabulous. Yeah, I think in the beginning of Six of Crows, I felt a little bit frustrated that sometimes I felt like she was being kind of passive about things, but I guess that is honestly, it's part of her like arc and character growth that she goes from someone who has been severely traumatized by her life events to someone who is now not only in a better place herself, but trying to make the world literally a better place. It's kind of an amazing narrative. Yeah, I, I love Inej. 10 out of 10, would read again, would watch again. She is incredible. I love her perspective. I love seeing her development. I would love seeing her development in a subsequent book. Mm-hmm. And last lightning round, Kiss, Mary Kill. <laughs> that Kat suggested. <laughs> so for this really tricky round, we will kiss Mary kill between Pekka Rollins, Per Haskell, and Tante Helene. Yeah, I, I love coming up with these because I love torturing Anjali and JJ. I think it's just like super fun to think of ones where they're like, I literally don't know who to kill first. For me, it's actually not so bad. I think I would kill Pekka Rollins. He's just like both dangerous and a coward. That doesn't seem like someone I want around. I would probably kiss Tantaline. And I think mostly, though, it would be to marry Per Haskell because he seems like the most easy for me to just like keep under my thumb and kind of rule over is kind of what Kaz does to him. And if I have to marry one of these three, like, not so great characters, I'd rather have one that I can control. So killing all of them is not an option. It is not. Yeah. I would kiss... Pekka Rollins. I feel like in the show, he's not unattractive. He's okay. <laughs> you know, I, it's hard, okay? I, 
<laughs> You're not giving me a lot of options here. I would kill Per Haskell because he's kind of useless and I don't like how he betrays Kaz in the end. I would marry Tan Helene, not because I don't find her horrifying, but because she has an awesome collection of jewelry that I would like to borrow. Wow. Okay, that's good. I would kill Pekka Rollins. I, I agree with you, Kat. Dangerous, coward, unstable, con artist, not someone you want around as a friend. I would kiss Per Haskell because I would have planned with Kaz beforehand and I would use this as a distraction <laughs> so that Kaz could, you know, rob him blind or whatever he needs to do. I would marry Tante Helene on the strategy of keep your friends close and your enemies closer. <laughs> And I would take over and shut down the business and then, I guess, divorce her and leave her <laughs> That's sort and, of And the... take her jewels. <laughs> and love yes, them to me. Okay, jewels. best answer. I like that. <laughs> yeah. It's true that Kiss, Mary Kill does not specify that divorce is not an option. So Right. And I, I was going to say, I did, Anjali, I don't want to give you this easy out, but you can kill people you've kissed and I'll keep that in mind the next time you guys give terrible trio people to pick between. Thanks so much for joining us again today. And if you like the podcast, please subscribe and like and give us a review.